and welcome to a Christmas week edition of Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here this week, sort of. Um, I'm joined by our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> but we're pretty much just here to uh, introduce you to two interviews that we have conducted uh, with two stars and key figures and two of the year's biggest hits thus far. We're mostly taking the week off, so we're going to use this time to share two interviews. Uh, the first one up is Johanna Desta, our VF.com colleague, talking to Lupita Nyong'o, who uh, is a star of Black Panther. And early in the interview, she was talking about how she's not really acting right now. She's on celebrity duty to talk about Black Panther. But it's hard to imagine a better representative of that movie than her. That movie's got such an incredible cast, and she is such a huge standout in it. And also someone who very much knows her way around Oscar season, which Johanna, uh, being a true Vanity Fair team member, could not resist asking her about. One of my all-time favorite Oscar night memories was seeing uh, Lupita Nyong'o and Bill Murray dance um, the night that she won for uh, 12 Years a Slave at the Vanity Fair Oscar party. It was like just one of the weirdest worlds colliding situations <laughs> in a party that's known for weird worlds colliding situations. But she is just the coolest and Black Panther is awesome. So I'm really excited to hear this interview. And I think that for all the the worthy praise that Michael B. Jordan's been getting and, and, and kind of awardsy hype for his supporting role, um, I mean, Lupita Nyong'o uh, and Danai Guerrero and other people, Angela Bassett in that film are also great. And so I think it's good that we're able to talk to one of them. Yes. Yeah, shout out to Winston Duke, too, who uh, was a Yale drama kid like Lapita, and uh, I had never seen him in anything before that movie and blew me away. And Letitia Wright was great. Just ever, just go down the cast list. Good cast. And then, Mike, we'll also have your conversation with John Krasinski, who is not just the star of A Quiet Place, but the director, a co-writer. He was the monster, I think. He, he had a lot, a lot of roles on A Quiet Place. Yeah, but we don't talk about A Quiet Place. We only talk about Jack Ryan the entire time from beginning to end. Just kidding. We talk about A Quiet Place. I loved A Quiet Place. I got. I, I think I brought it up 20 times in this podcast because I saw it in the theater and it was just like a whole crazy experience different from anything else. So we talked about that and we talked about being a director and directing your wife and how do you get her to be in the movie um, and all of that stuff. And so, and he's just like an all around very cool smart guy who obviously I think has an ever increasing kind of stature in Hollywood, which I think is good. Black Panther, it feels like it came out yesterday, but also two million years ago. But I do want to talk about craft and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so I guess I just want to start, you know, when you were handed the character of Nakia, where did you begin in terms of like doing the work to build that performance? And build that character? You know, um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, I, I mean, like all Marvel things, everything is top secret. So I only really saw, read the script when I arrived in Atlanta to start the boot camp, the physical preparation for the role, as well as a rehearsal process, which was really like a workshopping of the of the screenplay uh, that Ryan invited all of us to be a part of. So it was six weeks before we started shooting when I read it for the first time. And, I mean, you know, it's punch time. 
So it started with being in very, very deep discussion with Brian about what was on the page and where he wanted it to go. So it was a development process, to be very honest, and and we would meet with him and work on, uh, in groups, like work on specific scenes. He'd do one-on-ones with us, and then we'd meet in groups as well and work on scenes and just refine, refine, refine. And it was a script that was changing all the time, and it changed until the very end. You know, meeting Nakia, that first scene where she's in Nigeria and freeing these women, we had a lot of discussions about her being a lone wolf and also being, you know, uh, she's she's an activist and she is fighting for, uh, to give power back to women and, you know, to people in, in different areas. And, and so that spirit, that spirit of an activist, um, uh, 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 someone who, you know, uh, knows the rules and breaks them systematically to make her, the world a better place was um, really important. I, I also did a lot of research about spies from history and, you know, and different women who did amazing things in times when uh, they would, you know, when it wasn't expected of them. Were there any specific ideas that, after you read the script, ideas from your research that you brought to Ryan and said, I think this should be in the movie? Well, I think, you know, the thing is, he was always on a mission to, he really didn't want to have the traditional, oh, the girlfriend, the love interest, and that's the only role that she gets to play, you know. Um, so, and that was the mission of his, and so I think our discussions, and, you know, he really invited me to, like, offer up ideas to, to, to make her more of, you know, you know, a person with agency as well as fulfilling the role of being the solace for T'Challa. I mean, you know, I can't point to one specific thing and say, this was me. I, I, I wouldn't do that. But I think very much the spirit of Nakia is something that both me and Ryan were very close on. Well, I think like one of the themes of the process of making this movie that I keep coming, uh, that I keep seeing over and over again is just how much, like how much research was done for it. Like I spoke to Hannah, the production designer, not too long ago, and we talked about that sort of legendary 500-page Bible. Did you ever get to look through that, that that massive, massive document? Oh yeah, I did. Yes, yes, yes. I asked for it. I had like all the all the past Black Panther comic books and the Bible that they they created as well, leafing through that. Like, one of the, the Nakia's from the River Tribe, and the River Tribe is, um, got, had a lot of uh, cultural and aesthetic inspiration from the tribes of the Oma River in Ethiopia and the Surma. And so I researched those those folks, and, you know, even just her look, the makeup, and the, the, her traditional makeup and stuff like that, all of that was very much drawn from the research that was in the Bible. Uh, the River Tribe is also, um, their symbol is the crocodile. And so that played a big role in how I envisioned and worked on her fighting skills. Ryan had always said that, you know, Okoye is the more, uh, she has more elegant and a wider, you know, wider movements and you know, there's a grace and um, tradition to Okoye's movement, and Nakia's 
is street and it's by any means necessary. You know, she uses whatever is at her disposal, like the heel of her shoe. And, you know, so she did something rougher, more uh, hybrid to Nakia's fighting and stuff like that. And that married with um, the crocodile image. You know, a crocodile is an animal that is, you see it on land and it's very, very still. And you, and then when it attacks, I mean, it just barrels forward and, and it's over. And so that really inspired my, my way of, um, executing the peers fighting as well as her, her grace in, in, in just everyday life still until she doesn't have to. She, she doesn't have to be anymore. And then she's, she's vicious. Yeah, so things like that, you know, the, the, the hairstyles, everything. I mean, there was there was a lot, a lot in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like rich with detail. And Ryan did a video for um, VF where he just sort of broke down the casino fight scene. And I hadn't realized, you know, all the things you're talking about with like the street fighting versus like the more classical fighting versus like superhero fighting. I hadn't realized all like the depth and depth and depth of thought that went into that. Was that, I mean, through that six-week process, that's what you guys were sort of breaking down and working on? Well, yeah, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as clinical or technical as that, you know. What happened was Ryan started us off, you know, first day talking about these things, you know, and those words, you know, it's so important. Like, just you need just that kernel, you know, just hearing the word street um, in juxtaposition to the word classic. And then that just sends you, it just inspires you and, you know, awakens the imagination and stuff like that. So uh, we worked very closely, yes, with the five choreographers and stuff like that. But from that point, we never used those terms. It was just clear right. that was the mission and everybody knew. And we all did what we needed to do to get to that point, you know. And, and I think that's what's so great about it because, uh, we weren't deliberately talking about these things as we were learning the fighting, but they definitely inspired what I would say, yeah, Nakia wouldn't do that. This doesn't feel Nakia. You know, there was like a shorthand. You know, that's the Nakia of it all, and that's the Okoye of it all, and that's the Dora Milaje of it all, you know? Yeah, no, I love that. It was very specific. You know, you, he was very specific to begin with, and then you just chuck that and get to the creative work. And then, you know, in the end, you realize that it's all there. Mm. I'm curious, too, because, you know, when we first meet Nikia, we get sort of a hint of the spy work that she does. But for you, when you were doing your research, when you were learning about this character, did you come up with sort of like your Nikia prequel in your mind, your storyline of where she was, what she was doing in like maybe like the weeks and months leading up to the moment we meet her in the movie? Oh, yeah. And that was all really fun to try and figure out what kind of colorful life this woman uh, had lived until that point, you know. And I thoroughly enjoyed that process. And in the end, um, uh, I shared it, you know, I shared my Bible with Ryan so that we were all on the same page and, 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 and stuff like that about who she, where she'd come from. There was also uh, a scene uh, that I think it might be in the deleted scenes in the in the DVD, but I haven't seen it. But a flashback of when they were children, as well. So oh. that was also helpful, you know, to see Nakia and T'Challa as kids and who they were then. Uh, yeah, and it was definitely gave me a clue of how she, you know, became the woman that she had become. But I had the whole world to play with, you know, the fact that she's this war dog whose job is to go and infiltrate different parts of the world and just observe and report back. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun to do that. 
Yeah, well, just, I mean, just to point back to something that you said, the Nakia Bible, was that actually also like a typed up document that you kind of worked on? And like, was that a document that you had? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. Wait, how long was it? Oh, I have no idea. Not 500 pages, I assume. No, it was certainly not 500 pages. (laughs) Yeah, it's a document that was continually growing, you know. And the thing about creating a character is that it's quite chaotic. (laughs) You know, you strive for order and stuff like that, but humanity is chaotic. I really don't know. It was, you know, it's not as formal as the Marvel Bible. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have a logo or anything like that. It's just, you know rambling thoughts that um, that I compiled to keep tabs of who she was to uh, share with Ryan. Well, I think, I mean, we talked so much about, you know, the lead up to it, but I think one of my favorite things about when the movie came out is how people instantly went to that character and they were like, wait a minute, Nakia is Killmonger without the mess. And I'm wondering if you subscribe to that theory. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things that we had a big debate about because I remember the first time I read the script, I went to Ryan and I said, I side with Kim Killmonger. I, you know, I really do. And how dangerous is that for our villain to be so empathetic? You know, um, how do we, how do we get our hero's story to shine brighter than this one? Because it's, it's really powerful. And that was something that didn't terrify Ryan nearly as much as it terrified me. <laughs> but in the end, I, I, I see that as the sophistication of the story, you know, that both the protagonist and the, the one of the protagonists and the villain can be saying exactly the same things. It's just a different means to the same end. It refined uh, the the position that Nakia held, you know, for me, um, exactly what she should say and how she should say it and how she should occupy that space was directly in relationship to the Killmonger um, storyline. Right, yeah. I mean, you're right. When I first saw it, I I mean, like so many people, when they saw it for the first time, I was sort of blown away by how sort of radical the idea was and how just how much Ryan Coogler just went for it in terms of telling the story of Black people in America and the relationship to African people in Africa. I was really blown away. And I know that you've said in interviews that, that you were sort of like, wait, is Marvel going to let you do this? When he presented his ideas to you about what to do with the movie. Yeah, and like, you know, it was about, I think a year and a year and a half before we were, actually, it was, yeah, it was like a year and a half before I actually finally got the script and we were actually working on it. And that whole year I was like crossing my fingers because I was like, I don't know when mm-hmm. this thing is going to make it. That idea that he shared with me and then to read the script and say, oh my God, he was not joking. He was really going to really make this movie, and they have really greenlit it, you know. It's really a powerful thing to behold. Uh, and at the end of the day, Ryan Coogler, right, he, he expresses from a place that's visceral. And what he's given us in Black Panther is this discourse between Africa and, and, Amer- and Africa, America, African America. And it's, it's a discourse long overdue, and it's such a great... It's such a great discourse to be a part of that, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, now the connection over the the oceans is is really felt in this story in such a way that, you know, I was in Nigeria and and a man, a middle-aged man said to me, how are my cousins Bozeman and, and Jordan? You know, that's sentiment that I just never heard expressed so intimately. 
before this film um, in such a popular way. And I think it's, it's really a healthy discourse to continue to have. I don't think the film, the film starts it, it certainly doesn't conclude it. Right, yeah, no, it's still like an ongoing conversation. And obviously, I mean, everybody is waiting to see what happens next. I mean, I know you can't really talk about this, but is there anything that you would want to see Nakia do in the sequel? Maybe something that got left on the cutting room floor or ideas you have for what you want to see her do in the future? You know, that is a good, really, really good question. <laughs> it's not anything that I have, I, have, I have thought about in great detail, to be very honest. The moment, I don't know. I really don't know. But I definitely wanted to keep her man. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want to see that, too, in Black Panther 2. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I trust whatever direction Ryan goes, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, I was just curious if, if things got left behind, maybe in the first one that you were like, ah, oh, if only we had more time or if only we could bring this into the future. No, I mean, I think I think the film really, I mean, the film is an argument on the future of Wakanda, right? And what borders really mean. And I think it's a very taut argument. Nakia starts off by saying Wakanda can help and take care of itself. And the film ends with Wakanda, with with the king realizing that for himself through his own personal journey, right? That Wakanda mm-hmm. can indeed take care of itself and be a, a player in the world. So, I mean, the next step is, okay, now let's see. Let's see how that plays out, you know? I'm really excited to see because yeah, basically it's, it's a rearrangement of world order, right? That's a very rich imaginative place to be. Yeah, and I, I look forward to seeing what the, what they make of that. Yeah, me too. Is part and parcel very much at the heart of that matter. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think, you know, because this is an award season podcast, I just wanted to ask sort of about the broader award season really quickly. But uh, I saw that amazing photo of you at the Governor's Ball with Oprah and Cicely Tyson and Shonda Rhimes. Was that the best table in the room? I just want to know everything about that moment with you and all those women. Yeah, well, I wasn't a part of that table, and I think it was the best table, and that's why yeah. I went over there. You were like, I'm coming over here, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I went, obviously, to pay my respects and, and just congratulate Ms. Tyson. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, just looking at her real, the, the little thing they put together of her career and stuff like that. It brought me to tears, you know, because really, she's a woman who's really paved the way for me and and for a lot of us, you know, and um, she's done it with grace and dignity and humor, and uh, she's exactly who she is. She's uncompromising, she, and she's incredibly beautiful and through the years and the grace with which she has aged and the beauty that she continues to cultivate is just astounding. And then to be surrounded, yes, by all those other women, you know, Shonda Rhimes and Oprah, I mean, what on earth? You know, I look at that picture and I'm thinking, wow, I am a very, very fortunate woman. Absolutely. Was that your first time meeting Cecily Tyson or had you met her before? No, I met her. She came to see my play at... Um, oh, Eclipse. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Did she come back and, and speak to you or anything? Yes, she did. She really did. 
and she whispered some wisdom in my ear that I will hold close to my heart forever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I won't ask you to share that. That belongs to you 100%. <laughs> You're like, don't ask anyway, because I won't tell you. <laughs> yeah. I just won't. <laughs> no, but I love that. I mean, I, I love that. Just like the imagery of that, the visual of that. That's really lovely. Speaking about the governor's ball and speaking about, you know, the lead up to the Oscars that's happening. I was wondering how you felt about the conversation surrounding the best popular film category, which we now know is not going to happen next year. But I was just wondering how you felt about that in general, the addition of this category. Well, you know, to be honest, when it was happening, I was um, immersed in a film. So I really wasn't a part of that conversation. I was in Jordan Peele's world. Oh, right. Yes. So by the time I was catching up to what had happened, it had been announced and unannounced. Uh, so, you know, that's that. Mm, you got to sort of skip that news cycle. I guess it, just because you mentioned it sort of briefly being in Jordan Peele's world, is there anything you can tell us about us? Has it wrapped yet? And and what was that process like? I'm curious. <laughs> it has wrapped. I'm very happy to say. It comes out March 15th. Hoot hoot. And um, it was a phenomenal experience. I can say that much. It was uh, Jordan Peele has <laughs> a warped mind, and I was honored to be a part of it <laughs> for for those two three months that <laughs> we worked on it. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm excited and scared the way <laughs> that warped mind. I I need to see this. Also, just uh, truly to wrap it up, but is there any update you can give us on Americana? Like, are, is, is the miniseries still in the works? I've just been so curious about this project. Yes, the miniseries is definitely in the works. The night is penning it, and uh, we are well on our way. You know, it is truly frustrating how long these things take to, to develop, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, we got to be right by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's book. And I feel like we're getting there. We're definitely getting there, and do not lose hope. Do not lose faith. Do not lose hope. Yes. Okay. I mean, above all, I think from when I told people I was doing this interview, they were like, ask her about Americana, please. We got to know what's happening. So yeah, you've got a lot of excited fans ready and waiting. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely still it's still happening. We're still working on it. It's, it's coming. I'm excited to see it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lupita. Okay, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here talking to John Krasinski. John, thank you for joining us here at Little Gold Men. Absolutely. Where are you right now? Are you shooting Jack Ryan at this precise moment? I am not shooting at this precise moment. We are still shooting season two, but I am currently at my house about to get on a plane to head to L.A. Oh, okay. All right, great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Really excited to talk to you about A Quiet Place. I saw it, I think, at a theater in D.C. I saw it at one of those, like, nice theaters where you can have drinks and stuff. And it was uh, really funny because um, as they were, you know, they'll come and, like, deliver drinks in these kind of fancy new theaters. Yes, you have a fancier theater than I, but I've heard of these these futuristic uh, wonders. It turned into a thing because everyone wanted to kill the guy who was bringing the drinks because they thought that he was going to get all of us killed because everyone watching the movie is just totally <laughs> terrified of any sound happening. Exactly. So I want to start talking about that. It was a totally new theatrical experience for me. How did you approach that? Were you thinking about that from the beginning or was that kind of a side effect of a story you wanted to tell? No, it was definitely a side effect. I mean, we knew that sound would be uh, a main character, if not the main character in this movie. I always knew that. Writing the 
script. You know, it came to me as a spec script, but I rewrote it. And as I was writing it, I was very, very aware that sound would, would be everything. Um, but I think it was one of those things that you um, are are lucky to be an actor that has the opportunity to direct. One of the things is you get to take all the lessons you learn from being an actor on all these different sets. And, and one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned is to collaborate and to leave room for the most organic idea to come in. And so what I mean by that is I always knew that sound would be a huge part of this movie, but I would be lying to you if I said I knew exactly how I was going to about, go about doing it. So I, I had a plan, but I always allowed room for that plan to change. And it was kind of the most amazing experience and probably one of the best parts of the whole movie for me. So, for instance, the the scene where the family's walking across the bridge on the sand, you know, that day that we shot that, I remember hearing crew members saying, wow, the wood sounds so cool. And you realize that uh, people haven't been listening to their environments for a long time, ever since, you know, cell phones and all these things came into being. And then the second thing was when I was watching Emily do a scene with the kids and Obviously, with no dialogue and sign language, there's a huge risk there that are people going to get this. And I remember, I think it was like day three or four, I watched Emily do this scene. And of course, Emily was amazing in it. But these kids um, especially were wowing me because there was something so honest, something so um, emotional about their emoting um, pure feelings uh, without speaking. And it blew my mind. And I remember turning to my producer and said, oh my God, this actually might work. And he was like, hey man, it is way too late to be saying it might work. <laughs> <laughs> but I could see that, right? You, you've got to be, I mean, in the end, you cast an incredible spell, but there must be moments where you're thinking, are people going to actually sit through a movie where nobody talks for 90% of the time? I had that exact conversation, something like eight hours before South by Southwest, which was one of the best moments of my entire life and career together. But before we went into South by Southwest, I was I was um, still editing picture and still editing sound right up until eight hours before when we got on the plane. And I remember turning to my um, amazing sound designers and sound editor and the stuff where we took sound out, where we, you know, one of my favorite parts of the movie is the envelope that uh, Millie's character has that because she's deaf, when we go into her perspective, we cut out sound uh, with her. And I remember thinking, this is so cool. And then after a few weeks of doing it, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are people going to go with this? Or is this just like way too out there? And I remember my sound designer going, um, I don't know, man, let's give it a whirl. And I was like, no, we can't just give it a whirl. Like this is like, this isn't the Wild West. We have to, we have to prepare. So we gave it a shot and I'm so glad we did. One of the great things about it is the, I mean, the kids are incredible. It's, you know, obviously a small cast, but you and Emily Blunt, uh, you know, it, it's wonderful to see the chemistry that you presumably, I don't know you guys, but you presumably have together um, translate on screen. We're, was was there any trepidation on your part, on her part, of working this closely together? I always kind of feel like with my wife, like it seems like a good idea in theory if we would work on something, and then we're kind of like, yeah. what if we're not that couple that works well together? Oh my god, no! We were told by everybody before we did it. They were like, "So you're definitely going to get divorced. Are you sure you don't want to rethink this?" Um, which I thought, "Oh yay! Thanks for the positivity." But it was one of those things where, for me, uh, if I'm being really honest, I I didn't. Uh, ask her to be in the movie. I wrote the part solely for her. She was the only person on my mind. We had just recently had our second daughter only weeks before I started writing. She was also in the middle of this tiny indie movie called Mary Poppins. And yes. so she had her, <laughs> she had things on her mind. And so I just thought, you know what? I can't have her. The two things I was worried about is that she would say no. And that would make a really awkward dinner conversation. Or she would say 
um, yes, I'll do it for you. And that's what I was more afraid of because she's the type of person who would do that. She is that loving, that caring, and that respectful of that the fact that this was a big moment in my career and that I was taking a big swing. And so I really didn't want her to say, listen, it's not my favorite movie, but I'll do it for you because I've sat next to her, whether it's in bed or on the couch or wherever, every time she's made the decision to do a movie, pretty much I've been there at that moment and the look on her face and the dedication she has, no one has more class or more taste in this business. And so I didn't want that perfect um, instinctual machine to be like, well, I'm putting all my instincts away and saying yes to you just because you're my husband. I couldn't have that. So as it turned out, we were on a plane one day flying to L.A., and uh, she said, you know, are you ready for me to read the script? And I was actually going to Paramount to pitch them how I was going to direct it. And I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. She had actually recommended a friend of hers uh, already, another actress who we were in, you know, very, very early stages of a conversation. And then after she finished it, she looked gray. She looked almost like she was going to be sick. So I was reaching for a barf bag, totally true story. And as I was reaching for the barf bag, she turned to me and said, you can't let anyone else do this role. And it was kind of like we were in a romantic comedy. I said, what are you saying to me right now? And she was like, will you let me play this role? And I just screamed yes, uh, very, very loudly on a commercial flight. And uh, I'm surprised I'm surprised we did an emergency land in San Antonio or something, because when people just scream, yes, it's not the best. <laughs> That's great. So you didn't so you didn't have to worry after that, that you, you could tell she was in. Yeah, that's the thing is when she came to it on her own, it was it, it changed everything. And what I said to her was we got to treat this movie like we treat our uh, marriage. We have to be completely and totally honest at all times. We've got to um, you've got to go through every line of the script, every scene. And let's be really honest. Is there anything that you'd change? Is there anything that you think can be better or not necessary or all those things? And then I stood in the uh, living room for a few hours and went shot by shot what I was going to do with the movie. And we basically collaborated all those months before shooting so that by the time we got on set, all my directing and all her acting with the director was done. All our rehearsal was done. We were just ready to rock on set. You guys knew what you wanted to do. Yep. How do you approach directing yourself? I mean, I'm, I'm always curious about that. Do you have someone there as your trusted person? Maybe in this case, it's Emily to just say, you know, just keep an eye on me. Like, this is what I'm trying to do. Let me know if it works. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where, first of all, working with me, I'm a total diva. So I learned that the hard way working <laughs> with myself. Um, no, I, it's one of those things where if I'm really honest, it's 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 something where being the actor actually helps me so much as a director. I don't always have to be the actor in the movies that I'm directing, which is hilarious because I think I have been in all the movies that I've directed, but it's it's not necessary. What it is for me is the ability to when, when when actors actually start conjuring a little bit of magic and i do feel that it is magic when you when you hit that zone something special is happening in the room and so the one thing i didn't want to be was the disembodied head behind a monitor yelling cut and then just ruining everything the actors were doing so actually being a guy that gets to stay in the scene and whisper to them that was really great let's do another one or maybe try this or whatever and keep the cameras rolling and keep that magic in the air it actually makes it feel more like we're doing a play all together and we just happen to have cameras shooting at the same time. That's really cool. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating film because it was a huge hit and a theatrical experience that that was both an excellent accomplished film and like a really fun thing to go do, which I think is really cool and great for the business right now. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Oh, that that's, that was my feeling, but also now it is in awards contention, which I think it is, it certainly is worthy of that. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, are there films 
that you look to that kind of set the template where it's like it's a thriller it maybe is even kind of horror it's an alien movie and it's also prestige it's a film that can be discussed in the same context as other films that we think of maybe as more traditional you know awards contenders are there i mean get out kind of was that last year are there other movies like that no absolutely i mean for me first of all the fact that we're in conversation for awards contender is is overwhelming and surreal because we just thought it was a really special small movie. And I guess the best movies are, you know, the movies that you don't think could ever be all the things that this became. You just sort of make it because, hey, my wife and I thought it was cool, that plain and simple. And now I think that people have connected to it in the way that we connected to it, which is the universal idea of parenthood and family and, you know, protecting your own and 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 making sure that you fight the forces of darkness out there and all those things is exactly what I was hoping uh, people would feel because that's what I felt when I when I was putting it together. And, and certainly it was more of the classic, more throwback movies that I was using as a template. So there's Jaws, there's Alien, there's all of Hitchcock stuff, there's Rosemary's Baby, but those, those were the ones I was really watching constantly. Um, that said, I had never been a big genre fan, so I had to watch a ton of stuff before directing this because... I basically checked out in the early 90s when I saw Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time and I was like, no thanks, I am no longer <laughs> going to attempt this ever again. Well, because th- there's a there's a technical aspect, right, to to making like to scaring people in an audience. Like that that's a technical yeah. accomplishment. Well, thank you. I mean, the truth of the matter is my only way into this was to make a family drama and make a family drama that you Trojan horse as a genre film. And I think that's what the throwbacks do. I think that w- that's what these classic movies that we're talking about do. Certainly, I think Jaws is is not entirely about a shark. It's about three men overcoming their fears that they're forced to deal with that um, sort of manifests itself as a shark. But for me, it was also learning about genre. And the first thing I learned, I was so ignorant. You know, I was so ignorant to not be watching genre this whole time because in the last five or 10 years, you know, some of my favorite films, some of my favorite filmmaking, writing, uh, cinematography are all done in the genre space. So I became a huge fan really, really quickly. You say Get Out. I mean, that movie was mind blowing in so many different ways. And Jordan did such an incredible job. But then there's The Witch. There's, you know, um, Let the Right One In is one of my favorite movies. It's one of the best love stories I've seen in forever, the original one. And it's just that thing of storytelling becomes kind of magical in genre films. But it wasn't at all my intention. In fact, you know, I remembered this one bit of advice when I was back on The Office. I remember Greg Daniels, who ran the show one day, said to me, you know, your job is not to deliver these lines funny. Your job is just to deliver these lines. And if people think they're funny, they're funny. And if people think that your relationship with Pam is loving and sad and, and they get, um, you know, they cry, that's up to them. But your job is just to deliver it honestly, which, of course, was because we were in a, a fake documentary. But also it, it kind of was a piece of advice that I remember for the rest of my life. And I remember the day that... Um, I decided to sign on to this movie as writer, director, and actor, I thought the only reason why I was doing it is because of Greg's advice. And what I took from it was do what you know. And if you do what you know, all the rest of it will fall in play. You're, you're not going to guarantee that people laugh and you're not going to guarantee that people are scared. What you can guarantee is that they feel something. And so what I did was I just wrote what I was experiencing. Like I said, we had had our second daughter who was only a few weeks old. So as any new parent knows, you're actually checking their breathing. You're actually checking to see not only are they happy, are they healthy, but are they alive? And so that sort of raw terror, that much more primal idea of putting something much, much further up the list than yourself was all the things that were running through my blood. And so I just decided, why don't I put that into the movie? And that's that's sort of how I went about it is if, I, if you can feel something for this family, 
you'll be much more scared when the scares happen. And, and, uh, and luckily it worked out. And that makes perfect sense that it's a metaphor in a sense for a, a father who's kind of anxiously saying, can I protect this family? But also in the macro sense, I mean, there's something about this story that chimes with a lot of it's we're living in a kind of an apocalyptic time. Right. I mean, was that something that you had in mind too? this this notion that like things could go really sideways at any moment? And, you know, like, are we prepared for that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was on my mind. I think more, you know, less politically and more universally. And what I mean by that is the idea that I have very young kids. It's very difficult to explain anything um, in the in the sort of macro sense right now they're they're much more into what's tactile right in front of them and so this idea of you know creatures landing and um responding to sound and if you make a sound you're you're dead is so impossible to explain so you just live through it and the only thing that matters ever is love and support and um sort of a universal sense of family and that's all this uh family is about one of my favorite dichotomies in the movie actually is my the relationship between Emily and I. And what I mean by that is I loved the dichotomy of surviving versus thriving. That my character, when we lost our son, was so distraught, so um, completely shut down that he was willing to sacrifice all joy in his life to just ensure that he gets to put his kids to bed every single night. And Emily's whole thing is in, in the moment of the darkest loss, we must move forward. There has to be hope. And so there's this idea from the smaller sense of decorating this bizarre barn that we have, um, trying to hang a mobile for the new baby, having a new baby at all. People ask me about that a lot. And it's it's certainly one of those things where, first of all, it was in, it was in the spec script, the idea that she was pregnant. But for me, it was an idea of if there was uh, a night where they created a child, the conversation would come up of whether or not this is a smart thing to do. And Emily's character being so hopeful that there's a new dawn coming that she says she has to go through with this. I just thought it was one of the more powerful messages you could tell. And, and so that's, that's where all that came from. That's great. So how's it going with fatherhood now? Have you chilled out a bit or are you still a nervous wreck? <laughs> exactly. I just I just run around the house consistently but never make sound. My kids think I'm right. bizarre. Um, <laughs> no, fatherhood is uh, – you know what's funny is is I was trying to sort of wrap it all up for, for a friend who, who's about to have a child. And I basically said there's, there's nothing I can say because it's all been said. And the beautiful part about fatherhood is all the cliches are true. That's what I keep telling them is, is all the cliches are true, which is – you know, like the Grinch, your heart grows 12 sizes, the universe completely changes, you see colors differently, Every, everything just changes. And that idea that you have put someone's life in front of your own at all costs is 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 a beautiful, terrifying and wonderful thing. You know, it's all those things wrapped in one. Let me just tell you one thing. As a Yankee fan, I'm a little concerned that you're going to be raising these children as Boston Red Sox fans. Is that in the cards here? Oh, 1000 percent. Yeah. I mean, we already painted a green monster in both their rooms. Um, <laughs> you know, the wall, not the actual uh, mascot. I will tell you one of my favorite days ever is when a friend bought them. I don't know if you've seen these new toys. I'm not quite sure what they are, but they're they all have giant eyes. It's like all these different animals that have huge colored eyes and you see them at the airport or whatever. Well, they made those for Red Sox and there it's just the, basically a ball of skin uh, with a hat and a jersey with giant eyes and they call it Red Sox. And so the girls now come up to me every morning saying, Daddy, you love Red Sox. Daddy, you love Red Sox. And I'm really concerned that they think that when I say I love the Red Sox, I love these bizarre creatures. That's my <laughs> biggest fear. 
I noticed you were you were all over the get out the vote Twitter. Are you are you a political guy at the end of the day? Or is that something that's important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that more important than uh, politics, I think, is always one of those things that I've been, you know, I was raised that politics and, and religion and all those things stay at the dinner table, which obviously has has evolved since then. But what I do believe is in the soul of this country. I feel like it's one of those things where I've gotten one of the biggest things in my career is getting to know the military and getting to be more involved in the military after 13 hours in Jack Ryan. And I remember asking a group of Navy SEALs, I said, you know, where do you guys stand politically? And ever since then, that question of where do you stand politically has always felt um, slightly uh, um, bizarre to me because their answer was so good. I almost felt stupid for asking them. And I said, you know, where, where do you guys stand politically? And they said, the one thing you learn when you put your life on the line for your country is that uh, politics and politicians will come and go. But it's the soul and the fabric of this country that we're fighting for. And I was like, oh, my God. So it, it overwhelmed me um, that moment. And, I, and it stuck by me for the rest of my life. And so for me, whatever you feel and whatever you believe in, if you're a, um, a, a learned and and, and you're boned up on why you like the candidate you like, then go vote however you're going to vote, but vote for your own country. You know what I mean? Get out there and do it. So voting to me is non-negotiable. Well, that's really interesting. Is there anything more you can tell us about what you learned from the members of the armed forces that you met working on 13 Hours and even Jack Ryan? Well, for Jack Ryan, it was really more about getting to know the CIA. So it all started for me. I come from a huge military family. So I have uh, 11 aunts and uncles and cousins that have served and are currently serving. And so for me, the military was something that was omnipresent in my life. We were constantly having cousins or aunts and uncles ship out, ship back in. We were celebrating their safe return. We were nervously um, anxious when they left. So it was something that was in my life the whole time. And so I've always wanted to do something uh, in in our it's bizarre, it's bizarre to say, but I always wanted to do something in our business that would somehow represent to them or that I could somehow represent them in a tiny, tiny fraction by doing a, a story like uh, 13 Hours. So when 13 Hours came around, I jumped on immediately because it was one of those things of heroism for uh, no other reason but heroism's sake that way beyond the political realm of emails and all those things was actually uh, six men that night who put their lives on the line, not knowing what the outcome would be, not knowing uh, any politics whatsoever. That night, there were no politics. It was just heroes. So ever since then, I kind of got to know all these guys who were training me and getting to um, pick their brain and getting to meet their friends and their crews and now going to these charity events and all this stuff. And you, you realize that I, I am saddened to say that I think that the idea and respect for the military has diminished only because the awareness of it has diminished slightly. I think that I'm trying to consistently bring that back up um, over and over. And I think it's one of those things that we have to constantly uh, remind people to say thank you or, or just say a prayer or something. And I think for me, the coolest part about Jack Ryan this year was not only representing the CIA, which is a whole different group of heroes who were putting their lives on the line, but also we got to do the premiere on a warship with um, the USO. So we did the premiere basically just for the men and women in the armed services. And and to me, that's what it's all about. That's pretty cool. How many of those folks are fans of The Office? Probably 80, 90 percent of them, right? <laughs> it was it was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. There were uh, there were Office fans and as everybody knows or doesn't know, these deployments can be long and and uh, blow through the holidays and things like that. So they were saying that the office uh, not only got them through one time, but uh, over and over, I think people were telling me, yeah, I'm on my sixth 
office run or my seventh office run. I was like, oh my God. So um, we're just so lucky to be a part of their lives while they're out there. Well, you know what people say that for all of the new kind of content and all the all the stuff, the infinite amount of stuff that you can watch on Netflix, it's like 20% of it is just people watching The Office at any given time. <laughs> is, is that true? Oh, my God. Nobody knows, but that's the suspicion. I love it. I love it. It's one of those things where I think we're more popular now than we were when we were on television, which is crazy. Um, it is a show that people really seem to find over and over, and it's it blows our minds. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where... I think at every, you know, award show or whatever, people say, I'd like to thank the fans, but we actually have to thank the fans because we wouldn't be on air if it wasn't for the fans. And what I mean by that is we were going to be canceled every week, the first season and the first half of the second season, because nobody knew what it was. NBC didn't know what it was. And two things happened. One, the second season was all original stuff and it was really, really good, but also iTunes had come out. So NBC saw that people were paying $1.99 for a show they could watch for free and their brains exploded. And they were like, all right, well, we can't stop, you know, this. This looks like it's just going to make its way into the world. And so we genuinely owe everything to our fans for that show. Obviously, you and your Office co-star Steve Carell are now both on the award circuit. Have you guys run into each other? I haven't run into him. I've literally missed him at several events. I think he was on the stage at one of these like contender events or something just before I was. And it's one of those things where seeing him is always wonderful. I know he's doing Saturday Night Live this week. And if I wasn't flying to LA right now, I would be so there and so so there to support him, not only because he's my friend, but I think he's also the funniest human being that's ever lived. So going to witness that would be fun. Well, listen, before I let you go, and this is such a fun conversation, thank you for taking time. I always oh, like man, to ask you. people about their past um, you know, awards night experiences. Do any stand out in the various, uh, the various events that you've been to over the years? Well, I mean, I think for me, again, I, I haven't done the awards thing. I was never nominated for the office or anything like that. So I'm not, I don't do the awards thing all that often. Um, so this is my first real push on it. So I'm, I'm sort of gathering experiences as we go, but two things uh, about certainly the Oscars that I remember vividly. I remember watching the Oscars when Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia and I have no idea why, but I, I, I felt so moved when he won. And I was, I was younger. I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14. And I remember pushing in a VCR tape to record his speech because it was so beautiful. And I had missed the first third of it because he was obviously speaking and I had the idea to do it too late. And then the next morning, the Boston Globe, where I was living, ran the whole speech. And I remember thinking that this is one of those things where awards can, you know, seem like, oh, it's just a Hollywood thing or whatever. But when people make inspirational words and make their experiences, universal. That's hopefully the the power of what we do. We're all so lucky to be doing what we're doing in this business. And it is a giant fantasy camp. But every once in a while, you can have something that means something to someone else. And I think that that's, that's always the beauty of what to, to celebrate for me. So I remember that speech very vividly. That's great. Well, uh, I wish you all the best. And thank you for, for coming by to talk to us today. And good luck with the rest of the season. Absolutely. Thanks so much for doing this. That does it for this holiday week edition of Little Gold Men. We'll be back next week talking about the Golden Globes predictions. Awards will be coming up before you know it after the new year. In the meantime, everyone have a great holiday season. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth.